And take your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 3. As you're turning there, and uh, uh, it should be almost now that you can pick your Bible up, you bring it to church, and it falls open there to Ephesians. Close, anyway. As you're turning there, I do want to, uh, uh, because it has been so recognized internationally, I, I do want to maybe encourage you. In the coming week, you will face many scoffers. Lost men, atheists, agnostics, and others who will use Harold Camping and his somehow mystical numerology and his predictions of end times events and dates of Christ's return or the rapture as he sees it. They will use it. No, make no mistake, to laugh and mock you, to lump us all in the same category. And we need to know how to respond, I think. Deuteronomy says that we should not fear false prophets. Because if God has spoken, then what is said by the prophet will be true. But if what the prophet says is not true, then he is a false prophet and you have no need to fear him. So first of all, we shouldn't be afraid of what this will do to God, nor to his church. Secondly, we need to confess that what he did is no different than thousands of men before him, and that is he made one grave error. He became focused on a mystical interpretation of a numerological system which has no place in the Bible. And he disregarded the plain word of Christ, which is that no man shall know the hour of His coming. He, he took up, be careful because we can be guilty of the same. He took up something vague, difficult to understand and hidden and disregarded the plain and the obvious. And He made another error. And I think it's one that we make often. His focus is not on Christ. That's where we have commonality with Mr. Camping. His focus is not on Christ. His focus is on the events that surround his interpretation of Christ's coming or the rapture as he sees it. Woe to us, all of us, if our focus is anywhere but Christ. If you build your life on any other rock, don't be surprised when your alarm clock goes off the next morning. But we need to stay out of the ditch of ridicule. Do not join the scoffers. Do not let them bait you into their parades and their celebrations. If you go there, then you yourself will be called into question. It's better to say a man was wrong. That's not our belief. We're holding to the Scripture. And we don't know when Christ will come. But He may come today. He may come tomorrow. He may come while this sermon is preached. Hold to the Bible. Hold to the Bible. And don't be afraid. I've heard a lot of fear. I've seen a lot of fear on the Internet that this somehow is going to derail the great movements that are going on right now in Christianity. It won't derail it. 
God has a master plan. And so we should, uh, hopefully we'll be able to heed the Scripture's warning on this thing. And let's move to Ephesians. Enough of that. Last week we labored, myself and you, to introduce this passage in Ephesians 3, 3 through 6. For some of you, I admit, for some of you, you're not quite sure what all the strain and struggle is over. For some of you, you're more aware of the strain and the struggle. And I hope by the end of this, we all have a better understanding of the passage. The struggle is this. The mystery which Paul speaks of here, the plain secret, the revealed secret, is still misunderstood in our day by many. It's very difficult when we come to the Scripture, myself and you and others. As we approach the Bible, we all have presuppositions. That's just a formerly held belief, informed by either research that we've done, pastors who have taught us, other people, our parents, grandparents, whatever, secular society, Christian society. We have these presuppositions we've built into our minds. And then we come to the Bible And we're shocked and amazed to find that the Bible agrees with us. The problem is it doesn't agree with the others. It just agrees with me. You know, because it's my presupposition and mine's are different than yours. So we all struggle from this blinder. It's a reflection of the fall from the garden. It's the rebelliousness of our own hearts that has gone into society. We're behind two veils. We, we are searching for God, and in our natural state, we're behind two veils. One original sin, and two the flood. And you cannot get beyond them. Those two veils make it near and impossible for lost men. Completely impossible for them to understand the Bible. And even for Christians, the veil of the flood is not lifted. We're still straining. This world is not what it's supposed to be. And inside we know that. And the world around us reflects that. And we struggle and we strain. And we come to the Bible Bible with a lot of ideas that are in us. And so it's very difficult as we study. All of us struggle to move aside our past training or experience so that we can look at an issue of theology with fresh and faithful eyes. But I want to challenge you to work along with me. It's not easy, but it can be done because you are redeemed. And you do have the Spirit of God in you. And He can make things that are hard to understand, understandable. He can, and He does that. Okay? And you may find that your presuppositions are confirmed in this area. And you may find that they're challenged. All I'm saying in the introduction here is allow them to be challenged. It's okay. Trust God. Seek Him in His Word. Christ in particular. But I I, I want to continue this challenge and to say these foundational principles of Christ and His church are still difficult. They're still difficult. I do want to make the thesis or the statement of the sermon plain up front from Ephesians 3, 3 through 6 in particular, 1 through 7 as kind of a whole paragraph. And this is the thesis. This is what we are professing. All people who are being saved are being saved 
both Jew and Gentile, all of them are being brought in to salvation, sonship, and the kingdom through Christ alone. No one is coming in through any other way. Only through Him. And that's what Paul is straining to say in this passage. And we maybe we'll see some of the strain, some of the difficulty of this. First of all, we see that we are all equal in Christ as members of God's family. We are all equal in Christ as members of God's family. Verse 3. Look at it with me. Verse 3. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. Okay? So, this mystery has been revealed by God, according to verse 3. The mystery is not a hidden mystery. It is an open secret or an open revealed truth. In reality, even in the Old Covenant, it was an open mystery. It was an open secret. God was not, and I've said this before, I want to say it again, God was not playing hide and seek with His people. He was not changing the plan of salvation on them as the generations went by. He is preaching and proclaiming through the prophets, the shepherds of Israel, from time immemorial, from Adam forward, he's preaching and proclaiming the covenant of grace. It's just that that veil, the, the veil is still there for some. And for others, it's been lifted and yet the fog, the mystery, the hardness of the truth is still there. They're struggling, they're straining, and we see it in the Old, Old Testament. There, the mystery, though, that we are all equal in Christ as members of God's family is now been made plain. It has been revealed by God. When I say it's been revealed by God, you see the translation there. It says, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. It probably, it, it most likely would read uh, maybe a little more difficult, but better it would be said, how the mystery was made known to me according to Revelation. The foundation of what Paul is preaching is the revelation of Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. He is not some crazed, lunatic, Pharisee who fell off the wagon and went into some rogue doctrine and teaching. Paul was convinced, if you read Philippians 3, Paul was convinced and he had surpassed everyone in his category, in his realm. In righteousness, in obedience to the law. Have you read Philippians 3 lately? Think about it. He says he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was, in accordance to the law, blameless, righteous. I don't take him to be speaking in hyperbole. I take him to be stating a fact. As a Pharisee, he had exceeded all of his brothers. He was under the greatest teacher in the nation of Israel, Gamaliel. He was on the fast track to the fast track of being high priest, I'm left to assume. He was the best among them. 
Now what caused this man to leave Jerusalem with papers to put under custody, stone, beat, and kill if necessary people teaching this way according to Christ? What convinces a man that leaves a city with an entourage seeking whom he can devour? What convinces him to then preach the gospel that he's trying to stamp out? The revelation of God, Jesus Christ. Face to face. You say, I didn't have that kind of encounter when I came to Christ. You didn't need it. You have the Word of God. You didn't need it. You weren't a Pharisee of the Pharisee. I, we could go through the room, me starting with me. I'd line up first. None of us kept the law of God before we were saved. We don't keep it now in any part or parcel, right? We didn't need to be hammered with a visible revelation of Jesus Christ. I'm convinced God does what it takes to save His elect. And in Paul's case, it took Christ in the flesh. Living, breathing Christ standing in front of Him. Why do you persecute me? Why do you kick so hard against the prince, the goads? Do you not know I'm drawing you to myself? You're going to fight, Paul, and you're going to lose. You can struggle and strain. I'm pulling you to myself. From that experience, the revelation of God, the mystery that we're speaking of was made plain to Paul. Why, how can we know that it was made plain? Well, in Galatians, the, the, the letter which he writes specifically to combat the heresy of the Judaizers, what does he say? I received this gospel which I preach from who? Christ. Not from another man. The apostles didn't teach me. I didn't come to Christ and then go to Jerusalem and say, Hey, I'm converted. I believe. Teach me this gospel. No. Jesus taught it to him. And he's saying that here in Ephesians 3. Look at the passage. How the mystery was made known to me according to, based on the revelation of God. Jesus Christ in the flesh. The broadest meaning of this mystery, this idea, this mystery, is given by Paul in Ephesians 1, 9 through 11. Look in Ephesians 1, 9 through 11. <coughs> Making known to us in all wisdom and insight. Excuse me. Making known to us the mystery, there it is, the word, the term, he uses it. Over and over again in the New Testament. Mystery of His will according to His purpose. What's the broad sense? What's the broadest understanding of the mystery? It's right here. Which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, in Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. The broadest definition of the mystery is that God is summing up all things in Christ. That's why I say anyone whose theology is built on any rock but Christ has missed it. Not a little, by a lot. Christ is the central figure of all of the Scripture. And it's on Christ that we build our faith. And it's on Christ that we base our doctrine and our truth and our practice. It's Christ and Christ alone. The plan, the mysterious plan of God is to sum up all things in heaven and on earth in Christ. So, in the broadest sense, Paul would say, 
You Ephesians need to look back in the letter I've written to you. He says that in 3b, if you look. In Ephesians 3, 3b, he says, As I have written briefly. Now, we may can argue over what he wrote to them in other places. We can argue about whether they got the letter to the Colossians. If you look in Colossians chapter 1, just flip over a few pages uh, to uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 25 through 27. Indeed, he does speak of this mystery again. Look what it says. Now I rejoice, verse 24, my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of His body, that is, the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship, the administration that God has given to me for you to make the Word of God fully Completely known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed in His saints. Verse 27, To them, to the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery is not a mystery any longer. Hebrews chapter 1. Some who argue for Paul's authorship of Hebrews used the introduction as one of their main points because he did speak of the mystery all the time and he spoke about how in times past, in his own words, he said in times past God spoke in various ways at various times, but in these last days He has spoken to us in His Son. The mystery is no longer hidden in any way. It is open now. And some would use that. I don't believe Paul wrote Hebrews. I used to think that. We can talk about that another day. Uh, the best route to follow on that, by the way, is just to say we don't know. <laughs> I don't know who wrote Hebrews. God didn't choose to tell us. I don't think it was Paul. But nonetheless, that's why some people argue for his... Because he's the Hebrew of the Hebrews. No one would have known the law better. And he's in this mystery in the first three verses. God spoke in time past, but it was unclear. It was shadowy. It was, an, it was only a partial speaking, but now he's fully spoken in Christ, the revelation of God. So the mystery and the gospel, we can say, is founded on Christ. On Christ. The hymn writer says, On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. That, that's the concept. Paul's saying it's all about Christ. In Him all things are being brought together as one under Christ. And so we have the broadest meaning of the text. And it's in Ephesians 1, 9-11 through 11, that I think this briefly I wrote to you prior to this. I told you about the mystery. I think he mentions it in 2, verse 11-22. through 22. We won't read that whole passage. We've preached through that. But don't you see it there? This mystery that... God is constructing for Himself, ultimately, a people, a family. He's constructing for Himself a body. He's constructing for Himself a nation. He's constructing for Himself, from all the tribes on the face of the earth, a temple. A holy temple that's being built up in Christ. So I think it's there also. But here He says, How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. Next we see in the text that 
a close reading of the letter to the Ephesians will reveal the meaning and insight that Paul gained from the revelation of the mystery. A close reading of the text, that should encourage you. Some of you use that as an excuse, I'm just not very smart. I just can't understand the Bible. It's hard for me. Well, Paul indicates here, and we can be helped by human teachers and preachers, but Paul indicates here that if you will read closely, intently, dedicatedly, with eyes open and heart humble and bowed before the Spirit of God, you can know the mystery by simply reading the letter to the Ephesians. You can know it. Look what he says in verse 4. When you read this, this I think is uh, him saying to them the public reading of God's Word. In their day they publicly read these letters. When you read this, one reading in one sitting, you'll understand the mystery. Is that not, that to me is amazing. I've been studying for months. And they got, they, Paul's confident they will get it if they simply read. Hear it read nonetheless. It might speak of the condition of their heart and my heart. To, to, to step out here and say, it's a little on the toes, on the soapbox. When you come to God's Word with those presuppositions and those predetermined ideas, don't be shocked when its mystery is closed to you. But when you come submitted to Him, eyes of faith, gazing at Christ, praying in your spirit, God, show me your Word, He won't turn any away. He won't turn anyone away. I don't care if you don't have a high school education. He will not turn you away. I should give you confidence. I should help you in the time of struggle. Will we struggle with things to understand things? Sure. But we can understand the foundation, the gospel truth by reading the Bible. Paul is very plain to them what this mystery is. The New Testament makes it plain. Not just this one letter, but all over Paul. And by the way, Paul and his leadership role prayed for them to have this insight. If you look at verse 17 in chapter 1, he says, he just said in verse 4, when by revelation, I mean, excuse me, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. That's key, that wording insight. Look at verse 17 in chapter 1. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches and His glorious inheritance in the saints. So Paul was praying as their leader that they would have this insight, which he already has gained that their hearts would be enlightened. You want to be rebuked as a pastor, as a leader, or as a father. These are just free of charge. Men, don't get frustrated when your family doesn't understand the Word of God. You and I probably haven't been praying that they would understand. You're the pastor of your little flock. How many days 
has it been since you said, Oh God, help my children understand your word. Guard my wife by the power of your word that's written to us. Help her. So men, in our machoism, in our intellectual logic, we often rule out prayer. Paul never ruled it out. He didn't assume they were smart and they would get it. He said, I'm praying that the God of the universe who has made this plain through the glory of His Son will give your spirit enlightenment to understand who Christ is and this mystery will no longer be a mystery to you. You will have my insight. This wasn't a secret circle of a few that knew some spiritual, deep spiritual truths nobody else had. The frozen chosen. No. This was men of God who sought Him out in prayer and went to the Old Testament, which was their Word of God, and studied to see Christ, and they saw Him. It was made plain to them. And they're praying that everyone in the pew, forgive the pun, everyone in the pew would also understand. They weren't elitist. Paul's not an elitist. Paul's not trying to be smarter than everybody. He's not hoping, oh God, I hope you don't show them. They'll need me if, you don't, if they don't understand the mystery. He wants everybody to know the gospel. So we see that his heart for this mystery, this gospel, that it be made plain, that they have insight. The mystery is only known through a relationship with Christ. It's only known through Christ that He's bringing all things together. And specifically, it's only known in Christ how we cross social and religious and secular boundaries in the church. Only Christ can make sense of the body of Christ. A hodgepodge, haves, have-nots, black and white, right side of the track, wrong side of the track, people who have nothing in common, who come together to fellowship and worship and sing together and play together and work together for the kingdom of God. Nobody can help you understand that. Don't be shocked when the world around us doesn't get it. It just doesn't make sense. Why would you people ever want to be around each other? Because of Christ. And only in Christ can this mystery be understood. No matter how smart you are, segregation and separation and division make perfect human sense. It's easier in life if we'll stick with our own kind and leave the other people alone. I'm not against the other people. I just think they ought to stay in their circle and I'll stay in mine. These kind of comments are not against human nature. They are human nature through the fall and the flood. It is our nature to separate. But in the gospel, in the gospel of Christ which is not by man's wisdom, but by God's wisdom, it makes no sense. And furthermore, it is a reflection that there is no gospel when there's no unity. I was called this week by a reporter. He wanted to talk about race relations in the church. I wanted to talk about the gospel. At the end of the conversation, he said, well, I guess I got all I need. All you, you keep talking about is the gospel. And I said, no, I believe in the unity, the unifying of races. But it can only be done by the gospel. 
See, the world doesn't get that. They think they can have a kumbaya session, hold hands and sing, and everybody will love each other. That's fooey. It won't happen. You can't affirmative action it. You can't force it. You can't demand it. You can't make it illegal. The only thing that will stop it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you purport the gospel to be true and you live a segregated life, you should ask serious questions. Why am I who I am? Because the mystery is that the unity that's being brought together is in Christ of all things, heaven and earth. And when I have no unity, not even with my Christian brothers, I have a serious heart question to ask. Am I in Christ? And so we see here that this mystery is profound. This mystery is great. This mystery is amazing. This mystery is life-changing. This mystery is a rock and foundation of our lives. That in Christ, all men are being brought to salvation, to a kingdom, to a family. And outside of Him, no one is being brought together. No one is being brought into relationship. This unity is known as His kingdom. The kingdom is under the charge of His Son, God's Son, the King, and our Lord. How does the local church play into the kingdom? How does this church play into the vision, the great vision of the mystery of all things being brought together in Him, visible and invisible? Because we should be a visible representation of what has already happened in the invisible world. We should be living out unity, true unity, together and with our Christian brothers and sisters around the world. And if we're not, we're missing it. We may have it here in our heads, but we don't have it here in our heart, the gospel. If a demon could come and stand beside me, he would quote the gospel better than any of you. But he knows nothing of unity. He knows nothing of the practical outwork of the gospel. Because it's here. It's not here. And so when we look more like a demon than like Christ, we should be asking the question, Who am I? Am I His? This mystery is life-changing. It brings across all boundaries those who are in Christ and joins them as one for the glory of God. The mystery was not, verse 5, the mystery was not fully revealed in the Old Testament, but it has been made known fully through Christ in the New Testament. Look at verse 5. Which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. Notice the contrasts. As it has now been revealed to His holy apostles, prophets, by the Spirit. We see, in other generations it was not made known, now it is made known. Those are contrasts. In other generations, now. It has not been made known. It has been revealed. The sons of men had no clue about the mystery of God. The apostles and prophets do know the mystery of God. He has set up together an equation that says the old covenant was shadows and types, but it was not fully known. It was spoken of. It was talked of. But it was not fully known. As an apostle, Paul was responsible for establishing churches among the Gentiles. As a prophet, he was the recipient of revelation concerning how Gentiles are now fellow heirs with Jewish believers in the church. So the original text 
here indicates. That when he says his, it's a reference to God. If we look at verse 5, which has not, was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his, God's, holy, it qualifies apostles and prophets. And how has it been made known to them by the Spirit? Not by their intellect. And I, I fall into that trap. I think Paul was a smarter man than me. He probably was. But that's not how he knew the mystery. See, if that's how he knew the mystery, then that gives everybody a free pass that has a fifth grade education. I'm just not smart enough to get it. He hadn't revealed it through your knowledge, through your understanding, through your abilities. How has he done it? In this generation, he has revealed it, based it, the knowledge on revelation of Christ... And it is fully known. There's no excuse, in other words. There's no excuse that I have. I can make them all day, but it doesn't come down to whether I'm able to understand through my natural ability. It comes down to Him being powerful enough to work through His Spirit. And finally, in verse 6, the mystery is this. Gentiles are now equal with Jews in the church. We got into this question last week in uh, home group. Are we, essentially, are we be, now in the church, are we Jews? No. No. We're not Jews. It's impossible to be a Jew in our day. No one is a Jew in our day. You say, yeah, there's all kinds of Jews. I see them listed, Orthodox. You know, Jew. No, they're not Jews. You know why? Jewishness is a religion based on a temple. Where there is no temple, there is no Jew. If you don't have a place to make sacrifices and keep the law of God openly, physically, you can't be a Jew. He's not making us Jews. We are Gentiles. Most of us. Unless you have Jewish heritage. And I don't know. I'm sorry if you do. I wasn't trying to offend you. You may very well be Israeli. You may very well be Semitic. But Jewishness, no. We're not becoming Jews. That is the mystery. We're not becoming Jews. We're Christians. The mystery of the Old Testament is He's not going to bring them in as proselytes. The reason they arrested Paul in Jerusalem in Acts 22 is because he dared say Gentiles are coming into the kingdom without Jewishness. And that that word they rose up to heaven and said kill him. Dash him to pieces. We're Jews, and if they want to be saved, they better be Jews. And Paul is saying, no. If you're in Christ, you're not Jew, and you're not Greek. You're not male, and you're not female. You're not slave, and you're not free. For all are one in Christ, level ground, Christian. But I'm still a man. Uh Uh-huh. That's right. But that's not the title you're known by. It doesn't need to be. The most known title in Paul's world 
for Christians was fought slave of Christ. When asked, are you a citizen of Rome? I'm a slave of Christ. They got it. In Christ, I'm neither Roman nor Jewish. I'm not slave. I'm not free. I'm not a man. I'm not a woman. That's missing the point. I'm from Christ. I belong to Christ. I won't bow my knee to Caesar because I belong to Christ. I won't go to the temple and offer sacrifices because that's sacrilegious and blasphemous. Christ has come. Paul is telling us we are being brought together in Christ alone. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. They're not subordinate in the kingdom of God. The kingdom's not coming and the Jews are going to rule over the Gentiles. No. That's a complete and utter misunderstanding. We need to heed His word that we're to stop worrying about those things and focus on the kingdom. Focus on God and His bringing of the kingdom in Christ. Not who's going to have charge over who or what. It's missing the point when you say, is now when you will establish your kingdom? It's missing the point. You have me and I'm about to give you my spirit. Go back to Jerusalem and wait. And when I pour Him out from on high, I will fulfill all of the Old Testament. Make it plain and true that I've brought all men to God. My Father carried them there on my own back, by my own blood, for His glory. I'm not inviting you to come into Jewishness, nor am I saying we need to all move to the Middle East. I'm saying Christ is enough. And that's all Paul's saying here. Christ is enough. Look at what he does here. He stresses the equality here in three words. Fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers. And we won't go through all of the references, but I want to give them to you. Fellow heirs. All three words start with the same beginning in the Greek. They start with the same beginning. It means joint, fellow, with, in, sin is the, is, is the, the beginning. And all three words are speaking about us being in union with Christ. The mystical union with Christ that we have. Fellow heirs. Well, he's speaking about heirs to the promises of the kingdom. The Gentiles are now fellow joint heirs with the Jews. They're now Christian and they're in Christ. And in unity to Christ, God will give the kingdom to Christ and He will give it then to us through the Spirit and back to God in glory. That's a beautiful thing. It's all coming together in Christ. Romans 4.13, just to show you an example of this, and the way this impacts entire understanding of the Bible. If you miss this mystery, you miss the New Testament. You totally miss it. Don't miss it. Everything that was promised in the Old Testament has now been given in Christ. Look what he says. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring, notice the singularity of that word, that he would be heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through righteousness of faith. (laughs) So, those who are in the faith have inherited the promise given to Abraham that he would inherit the world. We don't have time to trace it in the pulpit. 
I want you to study it though. When did God ever promise Abraham the whole world? When did he say, you're going to get every grain of sand in the world? It's all going to be yours. No. In the Old Testament, he focuses on a parcel of the world. But Abraham, Hebrew says, looked past the physicality of that parcel and saw the kingdom that was coming. And he inherited based on faith in the unseen, not Canaan. He was looking at the ultimate Canaan, not physical Canaan. He was saying, Christ is enough. Not just in Romans 4, though. Let's flip to Galatians 3. Again, Paul's apologetic, so to speak, against the people he's opposing in Ephesus also. He's opposing them in Titus also. He's opposing them in Colossus also. There's all these problems. But they center around this misunderstanding of the mystery. And if you are Christ, verse 29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So if you're in Christ, you belong to the heirs of Abraham. We talked about that a lot last week, so I won't go through it all, but that is a powerful statement for you and for me. We build everything promised to our forefather has been granted to Christ and through Christ to us. We're not waiting for it. It's here. It's now. It's come. And it is coming in the future. One more reference, just, just because it, there's so many. Galatians 4, 1 through 7, Titus 3, 7 mention this same concept. But Romans 8 is, is such a powerful representation of being a fellow heir with Christ. Look what Paul says in Romans 8, verse 17. <coughs> We start in verse 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. By the way, the Spirit is the seal of our inheritance. So it's by the Spirit that we know we have inherited everything which is Christ's. And if children, then heirs, same word, heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may be also glorified with Him. So, he says, you are fellow heirs, you Gentiles and Jews are fellow heirs now with Christ. You're in union with Christ, you belong to Christ, you've received His inheritance through Christ. Next word, fellow members of the body. Paul strains so hard to make us understand this passage that he creates a word. This word cannot be found anywhere else in the Greek language, period at any period or time before Paul. Same beginning, different ending, and the different ending gives us the word for body. He goes back to chapter 1, verse 22. Look at verse 22. And he put all things under Christ's feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body. The fullness of Him who fills all in all. So in verse 3, I mean chapter 3, verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body. So the Jewish people reading this letter can't make any mistake. The Gentiles are part of us. We are part of them. We are in Christ, all of us. He is our head, Ephesians 1, 22 through 23. He's going to go on in Ephesians 4, 
verse 4 and 11 through 16 to stress this again. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. And then he goes on talking about how we're knitted together in the spirit in Christ as our head. So we're all one body. To separate now based on any barrier outside of Christ is to mutilate the body of Christ. Once Christ has brought it together in unity, they're fellow heirs. They are one body. And if you're thinking that he's going to then tear his body apart in any shape or fashion, he would be self-mutilating. It is his body that we have been brought into. Last word in verse 6, fellow partakers. Fellow partakers of what, Paul? Fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So we wrap up and end by this. We are fellow partakers of the promise. What promise? Now, in your mind, because of the introduction last, night, last time, I know you probably ran to Genesis 12. The promise is much older than Genesis 12. In Genesis 3, when God brings judgment on Adam and Eve, and on Satan, and on the world because of sin, He makes a promise. In Genesis 3.15, from you will come one, an offspring, who will crush the head of the serpent. God made a promise in Genesis chapter 3. And what is that promise? How is that dividing our Bible? Remember last time I said everything prior to that was based on the covenant of works. Everything was based on the covenant of works. Don't misunderstand that as a works-based salvation. That was a grace-oriented relationship because God didn't have to do it. But it is not known as grace in the first two chapters. Why? Because there's no demerit. There's no sin. When God created man, He was innocent and perfect. So it's not properly grace. Grace is when you get something you don't deserve. And had Adam obeyed, he would have deserved eternal life. He would have been tested in a trial and he would have passed. And he would have been perfect for all time. In a perfect union with God's relationship without Christ. But he failed. And he broke the covenant with God. And he died in his spirit. And in Genesis 3, the covenant of grace begins. It begins right there. From you... There will be one who will crush the head of the serpent. In other words, all that has been wronged will be made right in this one. Now, Eve believed God. How do we know? He doesn't say anything about it. Except that she names her son a son I've gotten. She thought God was bringing the promise to bear right there. She misunderstood, but she believed God. She believed Him. She had faith in Him. The covenant of works, man failed. The covenant of grace begins. That covenant of works is unseen. It's 
forgotten, I guess you could say it's not really, but you could say it's subverted. The covenant of grace is being detailed then. And the promise is repeated to Abraham. And the promise is repeated to Moses. And the promise is repeated to David. And the promise is repeated through the prophets. And the promise is repeated through John the Baptist. And then the promised one comes. And when He comes, He comes to fulfill the covenant of works. What Adam could not do, Christ did. And He took the curse of the covenant of works. He died. But He was raised in approval on the third day. To live forever in immortality. And those who have faith in Him have inherited that promise given to our father Adam, Abraham, Moses, David, the prophets, John the Baptist, and us. It's given to us. One will come and crush the head of Satan. In Him all the promises are yes and amen. Listen to me. If you came in here thinking you earn anything, you're leaving. If you leave that way, under the curse of the covenant of works, you will die and you will surely die. A second time you will die. And you will never know Him. He has not called you to know Him by your work, your efforts, your goodness, your religiosity. He's called you to know Him through His Son. He has spoken through His Son. The mystery has been revealed. Christ is enough. And He's uniting all men, Jew and Gentile, into one fellow heir, one fellow body, one fellow citizenship. We're in Him receiving the promises God made. Have you received the promise? Are you in Him? Is the Spirit of God in you? Are you still in some other alternate role or track? I can't answer it. Only you know. But that's why Paul strained. The whole Bible hinges on this. Do not misunderstand the importance. You say you've spent three weeks on three verses. Yes, and we could spend another year on it and we wouldn't understand it enough. The whole Bible hinges on this mystery. And so if we miss it, we've missed it all. The mystery has been made plain in Christ. So I'm calling you. Come to Him. Come to Him and drink from the fountain and eat the bread of life. Come to Him, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and He will give you the Sabbath rest your soul longs for. Come to Christ and you will be an inheritor of an old kingdom. Stop building your kingdom and come into His kingdom by His grace. Come to Him and you will have a family. Come to Him and you will have fellow citizenship and a nation. Come to Him and you will have it all. Walk away and you have nothing but judgment, death, and hell.